We are starting, though, with a follow-up to a story we talked about last week. We were chatting with the Better Business Bureau about an increase in scams where people were being scammed online and the increase in that type of scam. Many people losing thousands of dollars in the various different ways that scammers are getting into the homes and wallets of people who are unsuspecting. Well, today we are talking with a woman who was directly impacted by a very elaborate crypto currency scam. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Donna Stark. Donna, thank you so much for chatting with us today. My pleasure. I would like to get this information out to the public. Well, absolutely. And I'm so happy that you're able to do this. And through through nothing that you did that, that was wrong, you, like many, many other people, were scammed out of thousands of dollars. So can you tell us how this happened? Well, I was looking at an interview with uh, Carol King and Elon Musk about this um, Bitcoin. And so I in- inquired about it and um, through this trade center and uh, landed up with this um, uh, crypto FX pro person. He, he's the CEO of um, this company, and he said that uh, his name was Harry Barrett, and he said that uh, he was with the trader for the company to help me through it. And I was only had only had to at that point I only had to give two hundred fifty dollars to um, to to gain um, profit. Um, and this is what Elon Musk has said also. And so I, I trust that Elon Musk and Carol King, um, with their interview, that this would be valid. And only to find out that this person kept taking money out of my credit card to the point that he maxed it right out to, to the 16000 16, And once he was finished with that, um, he landed up um, disappearing. And I realized I just got scammed. And when you talk about the Elon Musk and the Carol King or, or those videos, were you shown the video or what looked to be a real video of them yeah. talking about this investment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I didn't really see it. I read it. And okay. it had pictures of her and it had pictures of him being interviewed. So I, I, I trusted that with both people being very trustworthy that that was valid, but I realized that you know I that they do use these famous people to look legit. And now that I look back, and I, I should have looked into it more thoroughly, but I didn't at the time because I trusted what was happening. And when you talk to this person who was identifying as a trader or a trader with the company, this was the person who was going to help you get the crypto trading platform, get the app, and was going to help you make the investment and make money. What kind of things did the trader say to you? Or, or, or what was this person like in, in getting your trust? Very personable, very warm, um, you know, made me feel very comfortable at the very beginning um, and very welcoming that he, you know, he was there for me to help me, you know, make some money because, you know, I was doing really, um, I was having a hard time with the COVID and I lost the contract. And so I was just barely surviving. And I guess out of uh, desperation, you know, you kind of go out there on a limb to try to figure out how you can make some money. And so this person just really made me feel really comfortable. But then after a while, I realized that, you know, he got into my account and I had no control over it. And I was going through this shake pay 
um, process where they take the money uh, from um, from your bank account and they transfer it to um, another line. I don't know how they do it to pay the um, the trader. And so I finally got a hold of ShakePay and I said, I'm being scammed. Can you shut my account down? And so they did. Um, and so, but that was too late then because this person already taken out all kinds of money, like hmm. every penny from my account. And I, and I have to pay it back because it's not my money. Right. And like you said, so this person was able to max out your credit card? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And without me being able to have any control over it. And and like you said, too, the initial investment, so this is kind of, we've seen these scams. So getting your trust, it looks like it's a legitimate person behind this, a well-known mm-hmm. name or a celebrity. And also that amount that you mentioned, that you mentioned as well, the, the, the initial amount being $250 doesn't seem like a huge amount. So I would imagine that, too, was what made it attractive. Yeah, it was, because I w- he said within a month or two, uh, six weeks that I would be able to get make $9,000. And I thought, oh, that's fabulous. That'll, that, that'll really help me out a lot. And that's what got me in the door. And once I was in the door, they got me. I was, I was trapped. Right. And, and that's when, how I felt. Oh, for sure. Because when you did that or made the initial $250 investment, did you do that with your credit card and that's how they got your credit card information? Yeah, I did. Well, I did it with my, no, I did. I started off with my bank account and that's how they mm. got me mm. is that I didn't realize that they're very good. They looked at my, my bank and saw that I had a, um, a credit of $16,000 in my, uh, my um, bank account for my credit card. And that's what they, that's what they went after is the credit card. Right. So was it a, a line of credit with your account or they actually maxed yeah. out? It was a line of yeah. credit. Yeah. And like you said, you're now on the hook. You have to pay that money back. I have to pay it back because I allowed them in the first time. Uh, what did your bank say to you? Did they, did, were they able to help you at all or, or what no. kind of a re- reaction did you get from them? I, I had an interview with about three different managers of the bank and they said because um, it's with the credit card company, um, their hands are tied. They can't do anything. So I got a hold of the credit card company, and they said because I allowed that person in for the first time um, that they can't do anything about it and that I have to pay it all back. And so I'm paying, having to pay the whole $16,000 out of my own pocket. Mm. And and what happened when you tried to, I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, but when you tried to reach back to the person who initially uh, reached out to you that you had contact with? He said, no, you won't get ever get your money back. The the person, though, that posed kind of as the traitor or the, that was the person yeah, at the face yeah, of the company? The, the, right? the, the Harry Barrett, who, who was the CEO of the Crypto FX Pro in London, England, and because um, I was dealing with the RCMP during that process because they were trying to help me also with this process. And um, he said he, they cannot reach them because they're in England. All right. Well, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story, Donna, and I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I do so appreciate you talking about this publicly and warning other people uh, about this. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so- don't trust anything on interviews with famous people don't trust anyone i mean it's like it's really serious because when i phoned the investigation bureau they said that they haven't 
they're having 400 scams a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's very, very it's, bad. It's very, it's very serious. It's, it's becoming an epidemic in our society today. All right, Donna, thank you again so much for talking to us and for raising this for other people. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, you have a great day. Earlier today, the BC Coroner's Service released some new numbers showing there were 247 deaths of individuals experiencing homelessness reported in 2021, saying that that's a 75% increase over the lives lost in 2020. Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe saying this report reflects the risks and realities that people experiencing homeless face every day. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about these numbers is Sarah Blythe. She is with the uh, an advocate for the downtown east side also executive director of the overdose prevention society sarah thank you so much for being with us yeah thank you thanks for having me well when we look at these numbers and i know this the this report looks at at the cause of deaths as well it shows that uh, that individuals between 30 and 59 years old accounted for uh, 72% of the deaths and uh, then it it looks at the illicit drug toxicity that's causing these deaths as well and other and other reasons for this but what is your response when when you see and hear this number well it's not really shocking because i i unfortunately i see you know i live in the downtown east side and i also work in the downtown east side so i see a lot of people that have died on the street so um you know after they died or or um I've seen a lot of overdoses and I also hear ambulances going 24 hours a day. So, um, and it's been a lot more than lately and the toxic drug supply with both benzos and fentanyl is extremely toxic and very easy for people to die. And it's, um, basically the majority of what people are using right now. So it's a really toxic time. And, uh, and it's just, it just makes me so sad because we've seen so many people, lost and i it just makes me sick just to even like you know even just to talk about this again and again and again and it's terrible well and that's the thing isn't it that we're talking about this today and in this report it says that what was the number that 93 percent of the accidental deaths among people experiencing homelessness were identified as being caused by the illicit drug supply that is a huge yeah. huge number what what could we start doing or or do different do you think to to try and stop this well, we, we honestly need to replace the toxic drug supply and really help people who are using drugs to get onto something that is either prescribed or, or something that they know what it is and what, what they're, t- exactly what they're taking. Because it's really the only way to, to get existing drug users, um, uh, that, that are not, have no plans to stop. Uh, right now, uh, into a situation where they're not taking, you know, they're not by mistake taking something that will kill them. And so, you know, it's just, and it's terrible because uh, some of the drugs with benzos in them, they they have people so that they're basically unconscious for a few days in some cases, and all kinds of terrible things happen to women, and and it's just, um, you know, people don't really even know what they're doing, and they lose everything, and it's just, and I see people in in that state, and it's terrible. It's, um, you know, and and I just feel, um, you know, as a person in the downtown east side working uh, with people, 
I just feel so hope, you know, it feels hopeless sometimes um, that we're just not doing enough, um, that we need to uh, push for more safe supply programs for people. When we look at these numbers as well, on the one hand, we often hear that uh, we are losing people to illicit drugs, uh, drug toxicity, because they're using alone in their homes. But then this report yeah. looks at people who aren't, who don't have homes, people who are uh, either mm-hmm. living on the street, living in a tent city, living in a vehicle. Yeah. Uh, it, it's which we're often told too that for for that particular reason can be safer because there are people around you. Not that that's uh, the the preferred living situation, but but are there things that we could be doing as well for people that don't have homes to at least keep them safe from this? Well, I mean, maybe it's we don't have a twenty four hour overdose prevention site right now, so maybe we need to start looking at that. But at the end of the day, what we really need is for people to have access to something that's not going to kill them. Um, it's just really the only way to make a huge impact. Uh, just that people know what they're taking and how much they're taking of it. It's really um, people taking cocaine and thinking that they're taking cocaine and then it ends up having fentanyl in it and they don't use fentanyl very often and they do that alone. Um, They might even do it on the street. And there's a lot of people uh, in really, really risky situations because of the benzos. Um, People uh, look like they might have, you know, be sleeping or, um, you know, that they've taken, you know, that, it's just it's so easy, much easier to die right now because of the drug combinations than it ever has been. <clears throat> it's just it's just terrible. So really, I mean that like uh, making sure that people can use where people are paying attention to them. So making sure that they know, you know, they can check their pulses and and they're watching them to make sure that they're okay and can deal with overdoses right away, or. Um, uh, making sure that they have access to safe supply through their clinics, through their doctors, um, through programs like Safer and and some of the other programs that are, are starting to become more available for people so that they can get something that's safe that they can use and that, that will help. And, uh, and, and only at that point, people can start building back their lives um, in the way that they, you know, that, it's, that they can live a better life. And, uh, and and a lot of problems that people are facing are it's because of the drug toxicity crisis. All right. Well, Sarah, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much yeah. for joining us to talk more no about problem. this. We'll talk to you again okay. soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. It is a Wednesday afternoon. It is time for our weekly check-in with President and Founder of Travel Best Bets, Claire Newell. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, and I I see that they did play holiday. <laughs> That's right Tim. Before yes. I, came on. <laughs> I love it. Um, it. Always puts a smile on my face. Um, you know what's putting a smile on my face um, is some new news that is just making things a little bit quicker for people going through YVR. And I've actually two different things to share with you, Jill, um, that I think people will be interested in. The first one is being put out by YVR called YVR Express Security. So this is really a cool new program that it's going to allow passengers to skip security checkpoint lines with this new service. You find it on the YVR 
um, website. If you're Googling, just put in YVR Express Security, and that's where you'll see this information. And with the new program, you actually put in a time to enter security screening up to three days before a flight. So mm -hmm. once a spot's booked, passengers can walk up to their assigned security checkpoint within 15 minutes of their reservation, show staff a quick QR code, and skip the security line. So this, obviously, we saw so many lines over the kind of the peak of summer, especially July and August. This is uh, has obviously been put in place, but I think it's going to be a game changer for those who, who use it. Um, the other one I wanted to talk about. So this one is an app. You find this on the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's totally free. You don't have to have um, pre-approval to use it, but it's been put out by U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, and it's called the Mobile Passport Control App. So if you're going in and looking in, say, the Apple App Store, put in Mobile Passport Control, and you'll see it pop up, and passengers submit their information before they arrive to board their flight. Now, this U.S. Customs pre-clearance option has been available already in Toronto as well as Montreal since the end of August. It's been working really, really well. But now travelers, finally, who are heading to the U.S. from Vancouver can take advantage of it. So again, just a reminder, mobile passport control. You find it for free on Apple App Store or Google Play because my, my email was going crazy about this. So right. I just know I want to be really clear about it. Now, once you have downloaded it, you enter your name, your date of birth, country of citizenship, passport information, and then that sets you up with a profile. And then when you're ready to travel, you can just go into the app and then select Vancouver International Airport. That's the option. You snap a photo of yourself. You answer a short list of customs and border protection questions. Then you receive an electronic QR code. So it's so cool. And um, so when you get to the U.S. Customs Hall, you can skip those electronic kiosks, go straight to a designated processing line for people who've done this, where an officer just scans the QR code. And I think um, make, they've made it quite easy for families. So families who are traveling together, a single household only needs to submit one form through the app. So just make sure you use these if you're listening and you're planning to travel soon. Um, I know it'll come in really handy over the holidays, but I think if you're uh, – a business traveler or you know a real road warrior you're on the you're going through YVR a lot this is going to be something that is a kind of I think you should start getting used to um, and it will make life easier now do you think with the especially the security one do you think if you have Nexus do you still need to do this or would this be different no you know that's interesting I am going to try I'm going to try it. So I have a Nexus card, but I will do this as well to see if it makes a difference and then whether or not I'll just go through. Like if it's not busy at Nexus, I won't care. I won't show them my QR code. I'll just zip through. Um, but I want to see. I want to see the process myself. And I actually have some family members who don't have Nexus. I know. Why not? <laughs> I don't know why, but they don't uh, because I'm a huge fan of it. Um, but they don't. So I am going to have them try it as well. But um, hopefully it goes smoothly for them uh, because I think it's a really interesting way of using technology to hopefully help alleviate some of the bottlenecks because they've been terrible. Um, I know things are getting better, much better, in fact, at um, airports right across Canada. In fact, um, in the, the kind of self-report card that the federal government does, they're saying they're pretty much back to normal to pre-pandemic levels as of last week. So that's really good news. Um, 
can I tell you one other cool thing about electronic Yes, vehicles? please. So I love this. This is um, Hertz, which is a huge company, um, but they have tapped General Motors to deliver up to 175,000 zero emission vehicles over the next five years. Well, goodness knows there's a huge shortage of vehicles in general. So this is good news in general that they're getting that many. Um, but the fact that they've chosen to do this with zero emission vehicles, I think is fantastic. They're, they have a goal to make a quarter of their global fleet electric before 2024. That's pretty ambitious. But it's pretty cool. Um, they'll be in all price points. Um, the, it's a multi-billion dollar deal with GM. It'll have a wide range of vehicle categories, basically compact, mid-size. There'll be SUVs, there'll be pickup trucks, luxury vehicles. And the first uh, group of cars are set to be delivered early next year. So um, that was really good news. I think it's going to make a difference. I think that, you know, we, we talked last week about the fact that Air Canada was coming out down the road. I think it's 2028 with electronic planes or um, hybrid electric um, but at the end of the day, I think people, especially if it's not a crazy amount more to pay, they will choose the zero emission options when, when they're traveling. I hope anyway. I would think too, and you're probably getting people asking this, that if you're going to go that route, then you would have to also make sure maybe the hotel you're staying at or wherever you're staying with your vehicle, that there are charging stations and that you're not going to be driving around on your vacation and, and running out of juice. Yeah, that's the thing. And actually, one of the things that they have planned is that they are going to make sure that they have a huge network of charging stations. So that is part of their actual plan, um, because obviously this is a car rental giant and they need to make sure that they've got a nationwide network of charging stations. So they are doing that and they're, they're um, going into a partnership to do that. Most of these vehicles in the beginning will be going to California because they actually have really strict electric vehicle quotas there. And so the, the first ones will likely go into that area. But yeah, the network is another really important piece of the puzzle and Hertz is on it. Absolutely. All right. Uh, I wanted to touch on this as well. I still get, uh, I'm getting email, so I'm sure you are still getting email about this also. And it's the requirements as far as proof of vaccination in the United States and what is still the rule there? Yeah. So the U.S. major, the only major Western country still to require proof of vaccination for border arrivals. They have not changed really anything. So non-residents arriving in the U.S. by air, land or water still have to show proof of vaccination. Um, I don't, you know, they're the last ones. Canada has changed their policy. Mexico, they're just this isolated country. And hmm. there's so much pressure uh, on them from all over the world, even within the U.S., the travel industry, the airlines, all really putting pressure on the U.S. to finally drop this. Um, and then I should mention that on the other side of the pond, um, as of September 30th, Spain became the last country in Europe to still keep COVID-related travel entry restrictions in place for non-EU travelers. So just make sure you're still using that website we've talked about for, I feel like, over a year now, but Sherpa, Sherpa Travel, put it into Google and just find out what you're going to need coming and going. Whether you're vaccinated or not, you can put that in. And then even if you're going via somewhere, like having a connecting flight, it will tell you whether you can or can't and what you'll need and all of that. But it's still an important piece of the puzzle. And as you know, there's nothing that we know more than things can change on a dime <laughs> in this industry. So um, it's just something to just keep in mind as well. All Do right. we have time? 
to talk about Maui or no? Yes, please, because I know so many people from here go to Maui, and this is an important one. This is a change. Yeah, this is a change that's as of October the 1st. Maui has banned non-mineral sunscreen to protect their coral reefs. They had talked about this for a really, really long time. It's now illegal to use, sell, or distribute any sunscreen that isn't mineral-based in Maui unless individuals have a prescription from a licensed healthcare provider. So make sure that you're looking for um, sunscreen that you take with you that have that mineral base of zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. That's what's going to be allowed. Um, Those are the only two ingredients the U.S. Food and Drug Administration uh, has said is safe and effective for for making sure you don't get a sunburn while you're away. But this is to help protect all of the the coral reefs. Tons of research has been done in that part of the world and found that it's hurting. It's hurting the marine life and the algae and the coral. And so... It's time to to do this. I have been taking just mineral-based sunscreen for a really long time now when they started talking about this, no matter where I travel. And so I just feel like in general, no matter where you're going, why would you want to hurt the marine life? So, so are these guns, sunscreens though that, we're, that people will see on the shelves or that people have been using all along? Or how, how would someone know? Some of them will, will be. They will very clearly say mineral sunscreen. Um, and, it, you know, if you really want to double check, flip to the back and just check to make sure it's a zinc oxide or a titanium dioxide as, as the main ingredient. But um, most of them will, I mean, that's all that's going to be sold in Maui. But I know people don't want to pay when they go to those Hawaiian islands for sunscreen because it's so expensive. They want to take it with them. Um, so if you want to do it before you go, just check our shelves. We will still probably here in Canada be selling ones that are not mineral-based for some time now. So you just need to make sure you're not picking up something that you can't even take with you because they will just take it from you once uh, if they see it, if they just did a random check. And and, and really, people are going to look look at you with a hairy eyeball if you happen to get it through and start to use it because you you really it's not allowed there okay you're not allowed to use or sell it all right that is good to know uh speaking of hawaii let's get people traveling you've got some great deals yeah i do um honolulu january the 19th through until february the 8th now you may not realize this but january and february are the two most popular months for the hawaiian islands they're um so to have a deal that's airfare and seven nights hotel for eight ninety nine, taxes of four seventeen is really good. I hadn't seen anything below about twelve hundred dollars for lead in hotels, and so as soon as I saw this, I'm like, okay, I have to mention it on the show, Jill. And now I do want to talk a little bit about a spring break deal. This one happens to be for Los Cabos, Mexico. But if you are looking to get away for a winter break or spring break, I really do recommend you do it sooner rather than later. I'm watching the prices just jump up um, left, right, and center, and they will sell out before they go on sale. There is a price guarantee with most major tour operators. So if you're booking a package and the price drops, you can change it once. So take advantage of the savings. So I found this deal. It's to Los Cabos, March 14th, air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. Adults are fifteen forty-nine. Taxes of six oh five, and kids twelve and under three ninety-nine. Taxes five seventy-five. Uh, I know it sounds like a lot, but it is really, really popular uh, these getaways. And the the unfortunate thing is, is that so many destination destination weddings were put off mm. and blocks of space because families can only travel then, right? Kids right. are out of school then. Um, 
are the, tons of blocks. You know, on destination weddings, it could be 20 people. It could be 40 people that are just taking chunks of aircrafts over the holiday breaks, winter and spring break. Do we have time for any more? Uh, we could do one more really quickly. Okay, uh, I think I'll do another hotspot. Veradero, Cuba. Air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. January 5th through until the end of January. 875 taxes of 480. Um, and there's lots more inspiration for you online at travelbestbets.com. All right, sounds great. Claire, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good, Jill. Talk to you then. Well, my next guest is a professor of criminology at SFU, also a recipient of SFU's 2022 Nora and Ted Sterling Prize in support of controversy. We are talking about something that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but Alexandra Lysova joins me now to talk more about destigmatizing male domestic violence. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I know this is something that you have studied at length, studied in depth. When we look at this, what do you think is missing as far as talking about this or at least raising awareness and giving this some attention? Um, I think we're actually missing um, discussing this issue more often um, in the media, on the radio. Um, we mostly see the images of um, female victims of abuse. We hear their stories um, and the common understanding that people have about domestic violence or family violence is that it's mostly violence perpetrated against women by men. We, we just do not have the discussion that there may be men who are also abused by female partners and we don't really know much about them. And um, the people I talk to, um, they actually sincerely ask me, how do these men look like? Why don't they leave? So it's interesting that these are you know, the same type of questions that female victims of abuse were asked about 50 years ago when the topic of domestic violence was first discussed publicly. So we need more discussion. We need more education. Uh, we need more services for men. So I think this, this is a complex issue. We're just in the beginning of really realizing how big it is. Uh, do we even know then at this point, or is there a lack of information because we're so silent on this issue? When we talk about family violence or domestic mm-hmm. violence, and obviously all of it is bad, we wouldn't want to see any of it. But do we even know how it breaks down as far as how much is violence against women and how much is violence against men? Yes, we do. Thanks to the General Social Survey on Victimization in Canada, conducted by Statistics Canada. This is the population survey conducted every five years since 1999. And the last one was conducted in 2019. So this is a very important source of data because this is a, um, this is the questionnaire that um, asked randomly. So every Canadian has a chance to, um, to be asked these questions. And, um, and people really just tell that what happens to them. And this is how we know that the numbers of uh, male who experience abuse are very, very comparable to those of women. And what is interesting, in fact, in 2014, uh, there were more men in Canada who reported to be victimized than women. So it's 4.2% versus 3.5%. And uh, there is another source of data, which is the police data. And this one is only the tip of the iceberg. And um, only the most serious crimes are reported to the police. And this is where we 
do not see uh, over. Uh, we, we do not see many men who would go to the police and report the incidents of abuse in the families. So we don't have um, comparable numbers there. And women are indeed affected much more seriously by abuse than men. Right. And and again, not to, to suggest any of this is okay, but mm-hmm. what kind of violence are we talking about? Are we talking about verbal abuse or physical abuse or both? Yes. Uh, so Statistics Canada uh, measures physical and or sexual abuse. And the numbers are comparable among men and women as victims of abuse. Um, when we look at the scale of psychological abuse, controlling behaviors, verbal abuse, we see also the numbers are very high for both uh, for both partners. It's it's I think a bit alarming or surprising to hear that the numbers are similar because I think if you asked anybody they would say that they would think that that women are the victims of abuse far more than men. Yes, that's true, and this is one of the. Uh, difficulties uh, with studying this issue. I guess that's why it received this controversy award, because it sounds controversial. And uh, the issue is that um, men are not considered as and do not fit the image of the um, perfect victim, what we call in criminology. Um, The perfect victim is usually those who um, we feel that they require our support and they're weak and vulnerable, and men just do not see that. And then the other reason is that the entire field of domestic violence was framed as violence against women issue in the uh, 60s and 70s of the last century. So men did not fit there as victims. Even today, we're still, we're still having this debate and trying to use different theories to accommodate men who can also be abused. So... Um, as an example, some of the early studies, they even wouldn't ask men about the victimization. So we wouldn't know much about it because the questions were not asked uh, to men. And one additional reason is that the men do not really uh, report victimization. So we do not know much about it because men do not readily go to the police. They do not, um, they do not try to get help from other sources um, compared to women who are um, are much more willing to do that. There are many stereotypes at place. There are many. There is embarrassment and uh, shame that men experience uh, when they experience abuse because they um, because they they don't know where to start. They don't want to even to acknowledge that they're victims of abuse. So these are some of the issues that we we hear from men when we talk to them. Uh, right. And I, I was going to, to ask you that, and you've kind of answered this, is that reluctance to report or or if men would feel more embarrassed and would rather not go on the record or tell uh, somebody about this happening. So does that obviously then lead to the numbers really not being reflective of what's happening? Yes, absolutely. Um, this is a well-studied phenomenon in psychology. Men are also less likely to seek um, any type of help. And uh, when we when we examine victimization rates, this is something sh- shameful for men. They do not acknowledge uh, that they've been victims of abuse. They do not like the term victim or survivor. They do not apply that to themselves. So some of the men waited for years in abusive relationship before they realized that what they experienced was wrong. That's what we call abuse and violence in the intimate relationship. So that is why it's so important to bring awareness about violence and that everyone can actually become a victim of abuse. And uh, it's still very difficult to break those barriers that stop men from seeking help 
um, from acknowledging that what happens to them was abuse. And of course, it leads to, at, le- at this point, we don't have that many numbers um, in shelters, in uh, crisis centers, um, just because men do not, do not go there, do not call. Or even if they call, they're not provided with help because many, many of these facilities were not designed for men. So that's another big issue that even those men who want to find help, they in fact don't know where to go. Do you find as well, or have you looked at whether or not it plays into it? And looking at very traditional definitions here of, of men and women and, and a, a men and women in a relationship, part of the reason I think when we look at domestic violence, when we look at, at abuse, family abuse, part of the reasons I think that, that we, we would jump to the conclusion or we would assume that, that women are victims more often because maybe we hear about it more, but also, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here and I don't mean any offense to anyone, but generally speaking, men tend to be stronger physically than women. So there might be a response saying, well, why wouldn't a man just fight back or, or have the upper hand in these scenarios? Yes, and this is the very dangerous argument that we hear uh, when the police come and, and they, not only not, not, not every incident, of course, but what we hear from men is that they're not taken seriously um, by, the criminal, by the criminal justice agents. And sometimes they are suggested, why don't you take justice in your hands? But that's a very, very dangerous uh, advice. Um, many men, indeed, are stronger on average um, and trained better than women. And it's a big danger there that when men respond to the abuse they experience, verbal humiliation or even physical attacks from women, that they actually women will end up being hurt. And we know that the domestic homicide, uh, intimate partner homicide, is primarily where the victims are women. Uh, in 80% of cases, these are the women. So we think that that is why it's so important to talk about men's victimization um, and in general, actually, in fact, about bidirectional abuse, mutual abuse, because this is what most of the couples that experience abuse have in their relationship. And if we really pay attention more to men, also those who can be abused, we can actually be at the better prevention of domestic homicides violence that can escalate further to very serious abuse just because men will not be in position to protect themselves, right? So this is something we know protected many women when women, female victims were treated seriously by the police and they would have options to go to the shelters or call the professionals and get help. When men are not in this position, they, again, indeed, these situations are potentially dangerous and we need to pay more attention to this in order to reduce the number of serious incidents of domestic violence where women are more likely to be victims. And one uh, one final question. And when we look at high-profile cases or celebrity mm-hmm. cases, and, and Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, I think, will come to mind for many people, does, does having that public view into that court proceeding and those intimate details, does that help raise awareness and educate, or does it hurt it? It helps. I actually wrote a paper for the conversation on this case where I argued that this case is a turning point in in our discussion of intimate partner violence. It definitely brings attention to uh, intimate partner violence, that it can, it's not only violence against women by men phenomenon. 
It's um, in many cases bidirectional. Um, it can be mutual when violence perpetrated in the same situation by both partners. We see that even celebrities can, male celebrities can be victims of abuse. No, it's a very important that this case actually brought, got this publicity and so many people could see that it's happening. And some men would recognize that they are actually abused and they need to try to get help or do something about their relationship. No, it's very, it's very important. We need more uh, publicity and we need more awareness about the men's victimization. All right, Alexandra, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for bringing this to our attention and for talking about it. Thank you so much. Thank you.